If you have a Bible, can you open it to Galatians, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33 tonight? This is what we're going to be studying together, looking at the topic of marriage. It should be uh, on the screen if you'd like to follow along. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's Word. Now, when you hear this passage, it can actually be a little bit jarring when it first comes out, particularly in a city like this, particularly in a culture like this. When you hear words like submission and husbands, and wives, and you start thinking about roles, and you start thinking about church history, a lot of times it can make people very, very nervous. You can get this sense of smash the patriarchy. Why are we bother dealing with issues like this and passages like this? And these verses, honestly, in many ways, have been abused. There's people who have taken these and they've used these to degrade women, to oppress women. And, it, and, and based on the stage our culture is regarding marriage, there can be a lot of suspicion, a lot of hurt, and a lot of confusion. But I just want to remind us, just tonight, just to suspend our judgment for a minute. This passage wasn't written to us now. The implications are for us, but this was written to a church thousands of years ago in a different context. It was written to the church at Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was a church uh, in the third largest city of the Roman Empire. It was probably the equivalent of like the Chicago in the United States. It, it had a lot of commerce, it had a lot of industry, but it was dominated by a female goddess named Artemis. And she, the city was built around her. The city was a banking center. The city had a large uh, social stratification between the wealthy and the poor. And into the middle of this, this sort of understanding, Paul writes this letter. So can we, before we start with ourselves and our own prejudices around the text, can we try and get back into the first century? Can we try and understand how to hear it as they would have heard it and then walk our way back to our own cultural moment and try and make sense of it? So that's what I want to do tonight. I want to go back into the passage. I want to understand it and then I want to bring out the implications for us. Now, on top of that, the second thing I want to do here is bring my own personal experience of being married. I got a picture up here of just right before I got married and uh, had to get special permission in middle school, obviously. And uh, <laughs> he's so young, gosh. But I've been married for 20 years and uh, very, very happily married to an amazing woman. And uh, my wife would say, we've been married 20 years, we've had two years of hell, two years of going through hell, and 16 years of wonderful bliss. So we've had some experience and some stuff in the middle of that. So I want to, as I talk through these things, talk about some of my own repentance, my own journey, and everything I share tonight has been approved by my wife. So 
I want to bring some of this stuff uh, into the context of this. Okay, let's get back to the context of this passage. This was written to a patriarchal society. This is true. It was written in the Roman Empire. And when you heard the word submission in Rome, they knew very, very clearly what it meant. Women were inferior to men. Aristotle wrote about this. They had a tradition connected to this. And so it was obvious that men were in the front and women were behind. The Jews also, the Jewish community, had a lower view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which Jewish men said, I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. One of their synagogue prayers was gratitude that they were men and not women. Women didn't have a full say in a Jewish court. They were in some sense seen as almost people in the society, the way that it had played out at that time. But the position was way worse in Greco-Roman society. The whole way of Greek life made companionship, genuine relationship between men and women very, very challenging. The Greek, the Greek women were expected to run their home to care for the legitimate children, but the man was off finding pleasure and sexual release wherever he wanted it to be. Men were often traditionally much older, women much younger. There was a huge age gap. This caused further relational complications. You see this reflected the role of women in society at large. Female babies were abandoned much more frequently than male babies. Greek men, typical age of married, Greco-Roman men, around 30 years of age, women 18 or so. So you can imagine the challenge of, of this dynamic in homes. They believed in the power of the family, but it was primarily to keep the 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 family line going. So the the wife's role was to keep things in line and to have legitimate male heirs to keep things in the right direction. Now, that's the culture in which this letter was written. Also, it's important to note the kind of literature that Paul is referencing in this passage. Aristotle wrote uh, a, a form of understanding how society should be organized, and it was called the household codes. And so Paul is using Aristotle's ordering and understanding of, of a society in this passage. So the sequence in which Aristotle addressed them, which is basically husbands and wives, fathers and children, and then slaves and masters, was Aristotle's ordering. So I just want you to see here, Paul is not preaching into a cultural vacuum. He is bringing the message of Jesus to bear on the social structures of their day, but I want to make the case that he is going to subvert it. Now, in the city of Ephesus at this time, there was a a growing feminist movement that was in in serious sort of pushback in response to the patriarchal society. Because Artemis was the goddess, she was the goddess in substances of hunting and also of childbirth, as, as well as a couple of other things, there was this rise of feminism in the city of Ephesus. So as a result of this, some women started to say, we want to do whatever men can do. So they took to hunting wild pigs while they were bare-breasted. They began to try and lord it over their husbands. They began to initiate divorce and try and separate themselves from their husbands. The Romans considered this a threat to their order because uh, the, the empire was sort of rotting from the inside out. And so Augustus, when he came to power to establish the Pax Romana, actually put fines on single people and tremendous fines on those getting divorced. And so there was a desire to re-solidify and bring the empire together around a traditional Roman household structure. At the same time, different Roman cults were beginning to circulate around the empire that made the Romans very, very nervous And so the cult of Dionysus, some teachings within Judaism, the cult of Isis, were also pushing for women's empowerment. 
And as a result, the Roman Empire as a whole was not condoning these moves. So here you have the Apostle Paul, apostolic mission. He's taking the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. He's going to cities that have no framework or understanding of a Jewish worldview when he's preaching to the pagans. They're being brought into the church, and now he's trying to form them into the way of Jesus, the new humanity, and the household of faith. And what Paul does in this particular passage is what's called a lifestyle apologetic. He speaks into their current social structure, but he subverts it by what he calls for the structure to look like. Traditional household household codes, this is my 100th sermon this weekend, forgive me as the words come out of my mouth, whereas household codes normally instructed the male householder to rule Paul begins with mutual submission, calls for gentleness with children, and instructs husbands how to not just rule their wives, but love them sacrificially. This was deeply subversive. So again, I want to say this. If you were hearing this in the first century, this letter here, there would be things that wouldn't shock the women as much. It would shock the men. The men would be sitting there saying, what are you, what are you talking about? So in this passage, rather than looking, this, looking at this as oppressive for women, I want you to hear it in the ancient context. This was a revolution for women in the first century. And it's why in the first, hundred, first 300 years of the Christian church, women found a place in the church. Women were put in leadership in the church. And it's one of the things that made Christianity the movement that conquered the Roman Empire. So let's have a look at what's called for here and why this is so controversial. I want you to see the thing that frames this entire passage, which is often left out, which is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a call for submission, but it's mutual submission in this passage. Now, there's a phrase I want to use here, spirit-filled mutual submission. And here's, what I, here's where I want to place this. Remember in the book of Ephesians at this point, chapter 1 starts with God in eternity past, the plan of salvation. It moves into this great apostolic prayer for revelation and insight into Jesus. It talks about our sin and how Christ has saved us. Then the church is a new humanity. Then Paul's beautiful prayer that we'd be saturated and inebriated in the unknowable love of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 is hashing out how to be the new humanity, the body of Christ and then reconciling different social classes. And then chapter five moves into what it means to walk as children of light and then how to be filled with the Spirit. Paul locates marriage in Ephesians around being filled with the Spirit. So this is a Spirit-filled understanding of marriage. You're going to have the Holy Spirit conference. You're going to talk about prophecy. People may fall over. Crazy things may happen. Paul locates marriage under the framework of being filled with the Holy Spirit here. So this is a spirit-filled lifestyle. You can't pull this off in the flesh. Idealism will not bring this to bear in a marriage. This is what the Holy Spirit does when he gets inside of the operating system of a covenant and he changes it. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled mutual submission is the operating system of marriages inside of the church. Submitting to one another out of reverence for who? Reverence for Christ. The Christian life is fundamentally about self-denial, and that's why it's in such stark contrast to a culture of self-fulfillment. It's about sacrificial love for the sake of others. Our primary identity as disciples is learning to love sacrificially for everybody, one another, all the way over to our enemies, as Christ himself did. And the goal in marriage is to make sure that that same sacrificial love is mediated through the person of Jesus and brought to our spouses in the process. 
It's not, it's not women doing this for the men or men doing this for the women. This is men and women both jumping in under submission to Jesus and giving their lives away for one another. One author that says this, there's something about losing yourself to the other and they're losing themselves in you that at the same time defies our ability to categorize. Healthy marriages all have this sense of mutual abandon to each other. They've both jumped, in essence, into the arms of the other. There's a sense of mutual abandon between them. If one holds back, if one refrains, it does not work. You see this, it's not just a teaching in Ephesians. Paul has some controversial, subversive teaching like this about mutuality and submission whenever he teaches on marriage. To the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, we read this same thing. And to hear 1 Corinthians 7 in the first century, I mean, people would have turned over tables at the house church. Men would have stood, what are you talking about? It would have been such a a fresh line of thinking. The husband should fulfill, fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. And everyone goes, oh, that's obvious. That's how we run the world. But yields it to her husband. That's correct. But in the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The the women start sitting straight up a little bit. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. From a Roman man to restrict his sexuality, when he's used to being having sex with whoever he wanted, now as a follower of Jesus, has to limit that and hand it over to his wife. This would have been a revolution. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. Authority over each other's bodies. Spirit-filled, mutual submission inside the church. Now, after having said all of that, Paul's going to go ahead to say, even though men and women in the body of Jesus are equal, they're not equivalent to each other. There's there's, there's a way that they hash this out that actually contains a gendered response. And so his whole point is the way that men, spirit-filled men, submit to their wives is different than the way that spirit-filled women submit to their husbands. They both mutually submit, but based on who they're made as image bearers in Jesus, they do this Differently, And according to Paul and Jesus, gender is not a tool of oppression. It's a gift of God to express the Imago Dei and reflect Christ and the church in marriage. So they're not interchangeable. The way they do it matters and is telling a greater story. So let's spend the next few minutes here talking about how spirit-filled submission looks for husbands. For husbands. It was countercultural in the extreme to limit the power a man had over his wife. To call a man to submit out of reverence to Jesus to his wife was unbelievable. And that's what's happening in this passage. Paul is calling husbands to relinquish power in their relationships with their wives. And this would create a very, very different dynamic. In the world at large, as soon as they left the house church environment, they would have gone back into this default patriarchal operating system. But inside the church, sitting around the table, children were welcome to participate. Women could be in positions of leadership and discussion. They were welcomed around a different kind of table. In fact, one scholar says that the Christian ta- there was no other place in society that valued humanity like the Christian table in the first century. There's just no other place of equality like it. 
So the first thing that God calls a man to do in relinquishing his power and submitting to his wife is to do this. Verse 25, to sacrificially love his wife. He submits by sacrificially loving. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We men in general, now I'm talking in stereotypes in some sense, but they exist for a reason. In some sense, Men disproportionately seem to have a selfish, entitled, and at this time of history, unformed, childish selfishness they bring into adulthood. They bring into adulthood. Many men don't have the mentors they required to grow into a healthy, mature adulthood. Fathers didn't know what they were doing. Fathers walked out on them. And so as a result, many men grow up, but they're what my teenage son calls man-ages, they have all the attributes of teenagers. They're just chronologically men. And so as a result, when they step into the marriage relationship, they can be very, very selfish. So the question goes like this. How do I get this woman to meet my needs? How do I get this woman to meet my needs in marriage? There can be a tendency towards selfishness. But the goal of this passage here, the husband submits to his wife by sacrificially loving her as Christ loved the church. So the shift is not, how do I get this woman to meet my needs? The submission is, how do I give up my selfishness and submit that to the character of Jesus and meet the needs of this woman? How do I do that? And it's important to note here that the term husbands love your wives is not the term husbands eros your wives. Be sexually attracted, that seems to sort of like come with the territory. No, the goal is to agape your wife. Now, the way that agape is used here has the semantic range. It's for God so loved the world. It's sacrificial giving love, and it's the same love to agape our enemies. So instead of just thinking, if my wife meets my needs sexually, or my wife does what I want, then I will sacrifice myself for her. Her response is irrelevant in this equation. You submit by giving up your selfishness and sacrificing yourself for her. Well, then this makes us ask the question, how did Jesus love the church then? How did he do it? In total humility, washing his disciples' feet, seeing the things, the people, the places, the situations overlooked by others, dying on the cross for the sins of others, taking the sins of the church upon himself, laying aside his glory to bring people into glory. This is what Christ did. So the call for the husbands, part one of submission, is to sacrificially love your wife. Submit your selfishness to your wife. The second thing is this. It's a sanctifying love. It's not just sacrificial, it's sanctifying. Verse 26, 27. The goal is to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish. Now, if you were unaware at the, the moment, uh, I, I grew up in Australia. And uh, I grew up in Australia, and there's a phrase called, uh, I mean, there's a phrase called the typical Aussie male. The typical Aussie male. I also dropped out of high school when I was 16. I started working in a meat factory when I was 14. And I just want to humbly submit that a meat factory with Australian butchers it's not perhaps a feminine nurturing sort of environment for a young man's formative years. So I possessed within me very, very dismissive, patriarchal sort of understanding about the nature of life. My view of women was not a high and noble vision of women. I liked women, 
It just wasn't a high and noble vision of women. So I became a follower of Jesus the weekend I turned 17. And all of a sudden, I began to try and take what Jesus wanted and integrate it into my life. I wanted to become an apprentice. I was an apprentice butcher at the time, so I understood what actual apprenticeship was. And now I wanted to be one of those under Jesus Christ. But what I did was I I basically took the language of the Bible and tried to take it into my mind, but it never made its way into my heart in the area of relationships. So, and, And honestly, can you please be merciful as I'm sharing my heart with you, a little vulnerable up here, but I, I would never have said this if you pushed me. If you pushed me, I never would have said this, but my, my theology was sort of like, well, look, you know, I'm a, I'm a man with a vision. I need to find a woman to help support my vision. I never would have said that. I would be, no, 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 no. But in my heart, that's what I thought. So I met my beautiful wife. Uh, she was 19, I was 20. We're in Bible college, which they called bridal college, <laughs> which I didn't understand until I was there two weeks, and then I was all about bridal college. Uh, but when we, when we got married, I just sort of imported that framework and lumped it on my wife. And you know when you're newly married, you're sort of, there's all of these power dynamics relationally. There's all these little micro-establishments of power as you're integrating two lives into one. Money, time, habits, entertainment, sexual, all of these. So you've got all of these micro-compromises and dynamics. And just subtly, I powered up in all of those. My theology basically said, and my wife just slowly died under it, not complaining, just slowly realized I am with a bull-headed alpha male. I guess this is what you do. So marriage is going along like, okay. But then I read this passage in a fresh way, and I really, it was like an M. Night Shyamalan moment. Like, I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, I've been reading the entire thing the wrong way. See, what this passage actually says is that Christ has a vision for the church and he dies to present the church in its splendor. And I thought that God gave me a helpmate to present me in my splendor. And so this put me into a cycle of such deep repentance. So I actually sat down with my wife and I said, darling, I just want to have a conversation with you. I am under such conviction from the Holy Spirit through his word. And she says, "Um, let let me ask you a question. Are you preaching on marriage? I was like, that's got nothing to do with it. That's irrelevant. Now, as it turns out, next Sunday, I am, I am teaching on marriage. But that's not why I'm doing this. Let the word live. And she says, I don't want to be a sermon illustration for you. If this is true in six months, I'll believe it. But basically what had happened in me is I got a vision for her redemptive potential. So instead of saying, you know, I am a visionary leader, what does God have for me? I just basically said, what do you want to do with your life, darling? You want to go back to school? You want to go back, what do you want to study? Go back, let's get you back to school. Let's get you back to school. I'll, I'll watch the kids at night. I'll bring them home. You go back to school. My entire paradigm shift, instead of thinking, wow, John's a Christian leader, what a supportive wife he has to, oh my gosh, what could you, look at Christy Tyson. Look at Christy Tyson. Wow, what a woman. So my vision of godliness was not reduced from how can I get someone to help me live God's call in my life. It was reduced to how to present my wife in splendor. And so this happened in my heart. 
I wanted a sanctifying love. I wanted to wash her with water and the word. I wanted to to feed her. I wanted to cherish her. I wanted to nourish her. And this, in essence, is what Jesus does for us. So this is a sanctifying love. A sanctifying love. And then the third thing here, says, verses 28, is it's a satisfying love. It's a satisfying love. It says this, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, wife, loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church when we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to the wife. The two will become one flesh. Two key words here, nourish and cherish. The practice of Sabbath, remember and keep. Husbands, in your submission, nourish and cherish. Nourish and cherish. So I, 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 want us to, I want us to feel the, the, feel the weight of this right here. So nourish and cherish. And this can be very, very hard. Men, at the start of every week, when you think about your wife, not all marriages, not all women, your wife, that woman, do you think at the start of the week, okay, this week, how do I nourish? How do I nourish her? Heart, soul, mind, strength. And how do I cherish her? How do I keep that vow, forsaking all others and cherishing? And how does she feel this? How does she feel this? So instead of saying, how will my wife nourish me? How will my wife cherish me? No, you submit your need for satisfaction to Jesus and you pour yourself out to satisfy her. This is our call. This is our duties. So this is, this is spirit-filled submission for men. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love, sancti- a, a, a satisfying love. Husbands, just, no, no shame here at all. Just checking in. We are we doing okay, men? Yeah. Good, just checking. Women, how are we doing? Yeah, we're doing good. We're doing good. <laughs> John Mark said to me, you've snuck a sermon to men under the context of marriage in here. I want us to feel this. I want us to feel this. Men, if we were to ask your wife, does she feel like you're submitting your selfishness to her? Does she feel like you're dying yourself to bring her life? Is that your marriage? Or do you honestly have a little bit in you the sort of, I've got a helpmate to help me do my thing? No, she's awesome, but she's here to help me do my thing. That's not the spirit of this text. The spirit of this text is to present her in splendor. Then it turns around and then addresses the wives in this passage. Spirit-filled submission for wives. Now, whenever again, even though you may have liked where we've gone so far, now that we actually do address submission in wives, it's like, oh, that all gets prickly. Uh, handmaiden's tale. Maybe when you hear this phrase here, you're just kind of like, dude, you had me, but now you've lost me. You had me. Like, I know what this looks like. This just gets dark quickly. And uh, men just don't have this within them. They are the patriarchy. They cannot repress this stuff. It just comes out. I want to say something, women, to you. And I want you to hear me. Men, I want you to hear this too. I had a very, very aggressive complimentarian in our church for a while. And he was just raving on about men's and women's roles and all the rest of it. So I just said to him, can I ask you a question, man? Do you have any authority over women in our church because you're a man? And he was like, no. I was like, you've no authority over her because you're a man. No, you have no authority over her. No, do you have authority over my wife? 
because you're a man? No. You see, this, this is not a passage for men and women in the world. This is about husbands and wives in a covenant of marriage together. So this is not, hey, this is what women can do in society. They should be at home just having children again and again and again and again. That's the only thing that God has. No, this is about marriage. So this is inside the covenant of marriage that Paul is addressing this kind of submission to. It's not submission to men in culture at large. It's submission to a man under the lordship of Jesus in the context of mutual submission in the covenant of marriage. In fact, the Bible holds up tremendous possibilities where women can thrive. I just I want to give you an example here. This is even from the Old Testament. A wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. Now, let's get into it. She selects woolen flax and works with eager hands. She has an Etsy, an Etsy store on the side right here. In the text. <laughs> she is like merchant ships bringing food from afar. She's a farmer's market stand. She's a whole cycle going on here. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She's a manager. She's in leadership. People are under her. She considers a field, buy it, and buys it out of her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She's in real estate. She dabbles in wine. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for the task, CrossFit. She sees that her trading is profitable and a lamp doesn't go out at night, commodities broker. In her hand, she holds the distaff, grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor, extends her hands to the needy, serves on the board of a non-profit. When in snows, she has no fear for her household. All of them are clothed in scarlet, couture style. She makes coverings for a bed. She's clothed in fine women, linen and purple. Her husband's respected at the city gates where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments, sells them, supplies the merchants with sashes, retail. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come, confidence. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instructions on her tongue. So that's obviously talking about a graduate degree in English. She watches over the affairs of her household, doesn't eat the bread of idleness, domestic manager. Her children rise and call her blessed. Her husband also, when he praises her, many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charms deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. She has influence in society. So I want you to see this is the vision. This is a vision of what is possible through a woman. So again, this is not society at large. This is in the context of marriage. Now, that being said, spirit-filled wives have to learn to submit to their husbands. They have to learn to submit to their husbands. The Greek idea of this word submit is actually a military term. It means to to line up underneath command. It's a military term. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What is she submitting to? She's not submitting to rules. She's not submitting to commands. She is submitting to a man who is dying to himself to present her in all of her splendor. If a husband ever says, woman, submit, she should respond with, man, die. Because that's what Jesus did for the wife there. It's submitting to a husband who is loving you. It is, I'm losing the men in the room. I feel it (laughs) as we speak. You're submitting to a husband who is loving you, a husband who is laying down his life for you, a husband whose call is to nourish and to cherish you. Now, in all of our emotional independence and all of the things in our society, we could joke about this, but in my experience, pastoring 20 years, my experience with my own marriage, it's true. 
Women, I think, because of the role men play in society and, and the things that perhaps people have been through, perhaps it's been divorce or abusive relationships or just inconsiderate men or man ages or whatever it is, they're actually terrified that they can be genuinely vulnerable and give themselves to another. And this is a part of the fall, a part of the curse of the fall that said your desire will be for a husband and you will seek to rule over him. And this can actually happen in our society. It can just be a sense of like, look, I want to actually let you in, but I'm terrified that if you do, you'll be a tyrant or a disappointment. So I'm just going to fold my arms and keep it a distance. My first year of marriage, we just, we just dragged such tremendous brokenness into our marriage. I mean, we were just kids. I mean, all the hormones and the chemicals wore off and we were left with two broken centers with dysfunction towering around us on both sides. It was horrific. And my wife said, I just couldn't believe that in spite of everything I'd done and where I'd come from, that you'd want me. So she spent the first year trying to get me to divorce her by doing a whole series of crazy things. And I remember in one of our worst fights, just screaming at her at the top of my lungs, why won't you let me love you? I don't want to fight with you. I want to fight for you. And she just couldn't handle it. But over the course of time, we've worked through this. And as a result, 20 years in, I often tell people, we have an intimacy and a vulnerability that at times is terrifying, but is so deep and so real and so beautiful nothing can touch it. So a lot of times people say, they're always concerned about pastors' marriages, and often rightly so, there's a lot of stress and pressure, but people say, are you happily married? I'm like, I'm so happily married, you don't have a category for it. And they're like, really? And I'm like, no, really, I'm so happy. It'd blow your mind. In what area? In every area, man. We've just worked through, because of Jesus, me dying to myself, and we've worked through her actually trusting that I want to do this in such a way that there is no hot, erotic, tender sex that can touch the depth of intimacy that we have in our hearts after 20 years. You just can't get it. So this is what happens when a wife is actually willing to do this. The second thing is she has to actually believe that's possible. The second thing is she has to respect her husband. However, each one of you sees, must see that that each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this is when it's hard. I know this can honestly, and I'm having this conversation inside the church, not to the culture, but men in our culture don't know how to be men well. They don't know how. Male energy is seen as a threat, not a gift in the world that we live in. And so men struggle to figure out how to actually go about dying to themselves and pursuing their wives and loving them well. They struggle to how to do it. And so as a result, when men begin to really get a vision for this and move out and to do it, A, sometimes women say, don't believe you're going to really mean this. Or they're kind of sucky at it because they're not very good anymore because they've lost their ability. And so often wives can say, is that, is that the best you got? Like that was your date night. Pizza, pizza Hut was your date night. It's been my experience that sarcasm, nagging, and condescension do not build a man's spirit. They just don't build a man's spirit. So if he's doing, if he's trying, if he is learning, though it is awkward and clunky, but if he's moving towards you in, in sacrificial love, in sanctifying love, in satisfying love, respect the effort. Respect it, nurture it. You won't believe what will happen if you do staying 
on that theme. It's a spirit, a different operating system inside the church. And the goal of this is that each married, each married becomes a portal, a pointer to the story of Jesus. This is the goal of Christian marriage. There's no teaching like this in any other religion or any other tradition. Marriage is a pointer to the true story of redemption. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Our marriages should preach the gospel of relational reconciliation in a culture of relational fracture. That the genders can come together and that something beautiful can happen and the way they treat each other makes people say, what is that? What is that? You, I want you to imagine this vision in the city of Ephesus. Someone gets converted and then his wife gets converted and they have all of these patriarchal society expectations and they start just running their household differently. And people would say to him, like, what on earth has happened to you? You want to go hit up the prostitutes? Ah, oh, good, man. Do you, what do you, you want to go down the bars? Ah, oh, I'm good. Like, what, are you, what, what are you talking about? Ah, wife of your own, man. It's going really well. We, what, what is going really well? What is going really well? I, I've got swept up into this thing, man. It's changing. What, what have you gotten swept up? How can you view a woman like that? Each marriage becomes a, a provocative, prophetic witness to the brokenness of the world and an invitation into relationship with Jesus. And so each marriage is basically a, a, a sermon to our secular society about the beauty of Jesus' love for the church. Frank Viola says this in 1 Genesis 1. In Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible opens with a woman and a man. In Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible closes with a woman and a man. The Bible opens with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. It opens with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Your Bible is essentially a love story. And each marriage has the ability to, to prove that out. Okay, I'm out of time in terms of the teaching. So now I want to run to some implications of how to bring that from perhaps the first century and bring us here to Portland. You have to see that having this vision, is, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be challenging to implement because we live in a society where marriage is viewed as a contract, not a covenant. The earlier ideal of marriage is a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the, ind- the individual parties. And so marriage as a contract says, I'm going into this so that you give me something and when I don't get it, I'm going to leave it. That is how they're framed in today's society. So marriage as a contract is about my own personal emotional attachment. As long as I'm feeling it, I'll stay, but when it's gone, I'm out. It's secular salvation because we're without the vision of God in society. We worship that which is next to God, which is human beings made in his image. And so for many people, the concept of marriage or the ideal relationship, the soulmate becomes a version of secular salvation. It's about personal fulfillment, self-realization. It's about consumption. What can I take from this thing? It's about my rights in the marriage and it's ultimately about my happiness. Now, I want you to think about taking all of those unspoken expectations that society gives us and then bringing those to another broken human being. That's the framing of our world. But the biblical vision of marriage is marriage is a covenant. It's not just about emotional attachments. It's about whole life union. 
Marriage is not a secular salvation. It's actually a picture of salvation. It's not about personal fulfillment. It's about fulfilling the other. It's not about consumption. It's about commitment and covenant. It's not about rights. It's about responsibility. It's not about happiness. It's about holiness. This is a completely different vision. And when you contrast these with one another, you will realize to have a godly vision of marriage will give you a different operating system in the world. Many of your friends will not understand the thing that you've got going on. And so we then, based on this, don't have these crushing, unrealistic expectations about marriage. We see marriage as an invitation to spiritual formation. This is one of God's great tools to help us become more like Jesus. And what this does in giving us realistic expectations lets us know what we're getting into. Now, it's at this point, I think it's time to reference the notebook. Let's bring the notebook slides up. So the notebook, honestly, what a film. Man, I wept like a little baby, wept like a small child when I saw the notebook. Next slide, look at what, look. Next one, Eros, baby, Eros. And then what happens in the notebook? Next slide here, boom, that's it. Wow. Now what's missing is the 50 years of hard, hard work. Our culture just... It gets all the, 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 the sexual attraction stuff and it just guts the 50 years of hard stuff in the middle. And so we have these unrealistic expectations of what it's like. Jonathan Haidt, uh, a, tr- a tremendous thinker, uh, wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis and he talked about where love goes wrong based on ex- expectations in our society. And he contrasts two kinds of love. He talks about Romantic love or passionate love versus companionate love. Let's have a look at this slide here. So, uh, next one. I, I drew this for you. Um, you've got, you've got <laughs> passionate love, which is our culture's vision of what love is actually about. And then over the side, you've got companionate love. Companionate love. And this is a, a different orientation and framework of friendship. And it's based on two metaphors. One is a flame that burns out. And the other one is a... a It's a collection of vines that slowly over the course of time grow and intertwine together to produce an unbreakable bond. So this is what he talks about. Next slide here. This is him talking about passionate love. And so look at the intensity of it, how it gets started. Six months on the bottom, right? Look at that, man, crazy. Unfollow them on Instagram. Every picture is there together, (laughs) hands on each other. But then look what happens over the course of time. But then look at companionate love. It doesn't have that necessarily that rocket fuel start. And so if you were to ask six months in, how's it going? The person who's only about passion is going to go, look, man, it's kind of slowed down a bit. And the companionate person is going to say, it's going all right. Now let's go from six months to 60 years. Next slide here. That thing's going to fizzle out to nothing, but companionate love will grow over time. And this is the vision of the gospel. The vision of the gospel is to, to, to make us not just sexually attracted beings. You don't need Jesus for that. But God-honoring companions who walk together in our loves. It's a gape love that we're building, not on erotic love. Now, erotic love is an amazing gift, but it won't sustain a life. Philip Yancey says this, Marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversexed supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odor, unruly hair, who menstruate and experience occasional impotence, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public, who pay more attention to our children's needs than our own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and endless supply of forgiveness, and so do our partners. 
Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need, far more sacrificial love. And this is why marriage is not just about satisfaction, it's about formation. So you're in your, in your marriage as a great tool of spiritual formation so you can die to yourself through your gender in relationship with another to become more like Christ. And that tells a story to the city. Now, some of you married couples who've been furiously elbowing each other this, in, this entire time, I just want to say here, in terms of implementing this, you've got to guard against legalism. It is my pastoral experience that trying to hold up to the person you're married all the ways the Bible says that you're called to submit is basically a formula for failure. Legalism is toxic in all of its forms. So don't make this about legalism. Make this about a vision of life. As well at this point, some of you may need to realize that you need deep repentance in your marriage. Deep repentance. Maybe wives, you haven't respected your husband's efforts. And he's basically thinking, I can never keep her happy. And so he's given up. And maybe husbands, you've just been thinking, she's not meeting my needs, therefore I'm looking at pornography, I'm flirting with others, or I've just checked out emotionally. It's time to repent. So I ask this question of myself regularly, is my wife thriving because she's married to me, or is she having to learn to thrive in spite of me? And I just sit with that question. When I look at my wife, are you thriving because you said yes to me? Or are you having to figure out an operating system to thrive in spite of me? I read this verse, Colossians 3.19. It just struck me to the core just based on my personality. Husbands love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. I had a harshness to my tone. And in, in my wife's greatest moment of vulnerability, she said this to me. She, she didn't read this verse. She just said, you're just so harsh with my heart. And I was like, harsh? That reminds me of a Bible verse. Oh, oh, I repent. My repentance started with a six-month window and has lasted 14 years. I'm still in it. So here's my advice to you married couples. Here's what it is. For 30 days, I want to encourage you to do an experiment in mutual submission. An experiment. Husband, just jot, jot down. Here's what I'm doing. I'm nourish, I'm going to cherish. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to sanctify. I'm going to satisfy. Wives, I'm going to submit. I'm going to respect. And, and here's the thing. Don't discuss it. Don't have a conversation. Just do it for each other as an experimental gift. Bring your gendered mutual submission. Bring it to the other as a gift without expecting anything in return. And just see what happens. See what happens. I believe if you do this, this will transform your marriage in ways you cannot comprehend and that God will begin to establish in your church, in this city, a counter culture of beautiful prophetic marriages in a city that is falling apart. So my prayer for you, my prayer for you is the same prayer that the Apostle Paul has, is that the Holy Spirit will not just fill you, but it will fill your marriage and that as your marriages are filled with the Holy Spirit and husbands and wives learn to mutually submit in the power of the Spirit to one another, that marriages will emerge from this church that are a prophetic witness to the city of Portland and your marriages will become legendary in this city.